Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We'll be in uh, Mark 11 this morning as we look at Palm Sunday. We have a saying, uh, it's been a saying for some time, and I don't think it's only in our culture, but crossing the Rubicon. Heard that? The saying has to do with, like, you've gone so far that there's no turning back. You're all in. <clears throat> uh, it comes from Julius Caesar, who in 49 BC, he was kind of a, a, a provincial governor-ish over a certain part, and he wasn't allowed to ca- cross the river Rubicon south, which would be kind of Rome proper. And everybody knew that he was uh, marshalling his forces to take over all of Rome. And once he crossed the Rubicon, it was a loud statement that he was all in and he was going to head towards Rome. And uh, so he did it. He, uh, and he crossed it. He said to say, the die is cast. The die is cast. This past week's events in Nashville, talking with some of you, and I'm assuming if you have spent some time thinking about the murders of the six Christians at the Christian school in Nashville, it feels like something of that for our culture, for our country, where Christians are murdered for being Christians, targeted for being Christians, and that the way that the world, our country, responds, maybe summed up best by the White House press secretary, said our hearts go out to the trans community. Our hearts go to the trans community. So if you've been seeing the news, the way that it's being talked about is that if the Christians weren't so oppressive to all the sexual insanity in our world, then they wouldn't have suffered that. And, you know, so killing of Christians is nothing new in the world. It's new in our country. And it particularly feels new when it's our fault for not or refraining from joining in the world's insanity. And so I think looking at Mark 11 and what Christ did and him going to die and his call to us to take up our cross to follow him is we have this right now, just a few days ago, this happened. Christians who were plotted against and killed because they were Christians. There, there is a good history. Well, Hebrews 12, we have this hall of faith. You've heard that. And part of it is to encourage us when we suffer for being Christians that many have suffered. And so I want to look at a few of those today, but all because of Christ. Jesus did most of his ministry in northern Israel. And in Mark 10, we see that he begins to turn towards Jerusalem. Luke knows that he set his face to go there. He was very intent on heading there. And on his way there, he said things like, uh, I am going there and they will mock me and spit upon me and flog and kill me. And his disciples wondered at it. Because surely, if he's the son of God, if he's the king of kings, that can't happen. But we know that he 
went to Jerusalem to lay down his life. And then it's no wonder that Christians have been willing because of what Christ did with his courage and love and humility and laying down his life for us that we have been willing to suffer for him. Maybe in the early church, one of the best examples of this are uh, Perpetua, Felicity, and Blandina. Have you heard their story? These were three women, very different. Perpetua was a well, came from a wealthy family. Her father was pagan, but her mother and brothers all converted to Christianity, and she was arrested. Uh, she was urged to renounce her faith, even if she would offer a simple sacrifice, uh, because she had just had a baby, and when she was arrested, she was actually nursing her baby. And so many were, didn't want her to die, and so if she would just renounce Christ, if she would just offer a, a simple sacrifice to the Roman power, she could live. Felicity was a slave and pregnant. The Romans prohibited pregnant women from being executed, and so she was in prison until she had her baby. When she had her baby, it was adopted by Christians. And the way that the Romans determined to execute these Christian women was by turning the beasts upon them. Uh, perpetual bull came in and tossed her, but didn't hurt her, and her hair came undone, and she's noted to have said for a moment to put her hair up because having her hair down was a sign of mourning, and this was a day of triumph and joy. Blandina, the slave, and Felicity, the slave, were the last to die, and they were hanged from posts, exposed to wild animals, tortured, trapped in a net, and then trampled by bulls, which is often how they executed women. And they did so gladly. But why did they die? What was the charge that the Romans had against Christians? Do you know? Why were Christians arrested, tortured, and murdered? In persecution in the early church, which I highly recommend, especially in light of what happened, please get this. It's very readable. It's a actually historical, scholarly look at why Christians died. There's three main reasons that Christians were killed. Two of them were treason and anarchy. The third charge was atheism. It makes sense once you get what they mean by it. At at the heart of every nation is their god or gods and its worship. America was like this, right? We were founded by Christians wanting to establish a thoroughly biblical nation. And when you have people who refuse to go along with the gods, that kind of atheism is seen as super unpatriotic and so treasonous and anarchy. And so since Christians refuse to worship the gods, to worship Caesar... And to go along with all of it, they were seen to be very unpatriotic. Their following of a crucified Savior was seen to be disgusting. And so they were seen to be very peculiar and weird. They refused to go along with all of the sexual immorality that went along with Roman pagan worship. And so they were against the state. And they were a threat to the peace of the state. 
And so they were killed. Because what do you do with people who are against the state, against the peace of the state, and won't go along with the worship of the state? You kill them. What happened then is what happened this week. What's the God of our day? What's the God of our country? It's the demonic worship of all sexual immorality. That's the God of our day. It's sexual gratification individually based on however you want it, whenever you want it, with whomever you want it, identifying as you will. And so since Christians, those who call on the name of Christ, say no to that and won't go along with it, it's no wonder that the press secretary said, our hearts don't go out to the families of the six murdered Christians. Our heart don't go out to the Christian community, but to the trans community for the violence they're facing. We deserve it. If Christians would just go along with the sexual lunacy of our day, then these things wouldn't happen. We oppose the exploitation and mutilation of young boys and girls. We will not lie and call a boy she or vice versa. And so we're a threat to the peace of our society. And so our country has done what many have done before, shed the blood of Christians simply for being Christians. And those six testified to their faith by the willingness to lay it down. And so what do you do with that? What do you do with that, believers? Those who call on the name of Christ. Well, we look to Christ. We look to him who didn't like come into Jerusalem through the back gate at night, but came in through the front gate loudly, courageously, refusing the worship of the day in order to shepherd his vulnerable sheep by laying down his life for them. That's what we do. So Palm Sunday is a great day to mourn and grieve and look to Christ when our country now considers it just that Christians would shed their blood for opposing that God made us, made it, that we stand for God making us male and female. Isn't this sobering? Do you see what's happened here? That you now live in a world, in a country, where just a few years ago this was unthinkable. I remember seven years ago, I said a joke in the pulpit that identifies a six foot five Asian woman. Do you remember that? Some of you got really frustrated with me for saying that. It, because seven years ago was when this kind of stuff was just coming and it was such a joke. It was so silly. And now it's not a joke anymore. And so let's strengthen our faith. Let's look to Christ and his courage and humility and his sacrifice for us that we might have similarly to live our lives for him. Let me read, I'm going to read Mark 11, 1 to 11, and then we'll look at the triumphal entry and how it might apply to us. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. 
And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's ask God's help. Heavenly Father, you are the Savior of all who come to you in faith. We ask now for your help to comfort and strengthen us in the darkness of our day. Make us faithful even unto death to you. Make us those who would be glad to suffer and rejoice. Teach us not to hate our enemies, but to love them and pray for them, that we may be your children. And so, God, we ask for your help now. Please have mercy on us. Save us, O Lord, we pray. Amen. At the beginning of Mark 10... It says that he left there, that is this northern area, and went to the region of Judea. He started heading south. If you remember, the Samaritans wouldn't let him come through, and so he had to head, uh, what would that be, east across the Jordan, and then south in the Midwest into Jerusalem. So what, where we see him then in chapter 11 is entering into two small villages just uh, uh, east of Jerusalem, overlooking Jerusalem. There's two scenes in our text. The first is Jesus explaining to two of his disciples that they are to go into one of his villages. They'll find a colt that hadn't been written on, tells them exactly what to say. Then the second is Jesus, after they do that and bring the colt back, riding into Jerusalem triumphantly. And so at the head of this section, you probably have a heading that says the triumphal entry. And that's right, because Jesus did enter Jerusalem as king, triumphantly. And as you've probably seen acted out, I've often thought we should have the kids bringing in palm branches today. We should do that sometime. So any of you who are looking for something to do and want to plan it for next year, please let me know. I think that'd be really neat. Uh, They started shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna! Blessed is the coming of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And so what's going on here is more than meets the eye. If you keep your finger here, turn, if you would, to Zechariah 9. Zechariah is just uh, two books from the end of the Old Testament. And in Zechariah 9, it is foretold or prophesied that this is how God's promised king would enter. Now, Zechariah 9, if you have headings in your Bible, the heading before verse 1 says something about judgment. Mine says, judgment on Israel's enemies. And if you were to read this chapter, you would see that it is pretty terrifying uh, prophecy of God's coming king who would bring destruction in some terrifying ways on all of his enemies. And the culmination of this is verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. So this is said to God's people who are suffering at the hands of enemies. And they're to rejoice. This reminds you what Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Rejoice when all kinds of evil is uttered against you. Rejoice and be glad when you suffer persecution for his. So they're rejoicing, even though they're suffering. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Shout aloud, O daughters. Why? Your king's coming. Your king's coming to you. How is he going to come? Now, again... You know the story, so you have to pretend like you don't. 
There's a fault with you have been Christians for any time of kind of just like dwelling in the mushiness of knowing it, but not really knowing it, not knowing like it's brand new again, and maybe not having the wonder of it anymore. How does a king come? Even our own president, how do they come into, like, if they're coming to Green Bay or Wausau, they won't ever come to Rhineland. Or how, how do they come? Motorcade, huge jet, bands, like big pomp and circumstance. And so the craziness of it here is, like, rejoice, sing, behold, your king has come to you. Humble and riding a donkey. <laughs> He's humble and mounted on a donkey. Not only a donkey, a, a colt, a foal of a donkey, an unridden and unbroken, a wild donkey. And so this great king that is the source of joy for God's persecuted people is humble. He's powerful and will destroy his enemies, but towards you, humble and caring and gentle. And so he's our king. He's the reason for our rejoicing. And what we see in Jesus' entering in Jerusalem is the fulfillment of this. He's the king come. He's the king coming with what? Salvation. He is the king come to save his people. Uh, This picture of spreading cloaks and branches and so on, uh, actually happened at least once in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Jehu? Jehu was appointed to become king and then to go and slaughter all of Ahab's descendants. And the prophet is sent and anoints him in secret and some of his, Jehu's followers see it. He's anointed with oil and It's kind of one of those uh, sticky situations where Jehu is like, I've just been anointed king, which could cause my death immediately. I wonder what everybody's going to think. And so he says, what are you going to make of this? And they all get behind him and they start throwing their cloaks on the ground that he can walk on them. And that's the way that you identify who is God's chosen king. And so that the people do this is them hearkening back to second king's It's either 9 or 19. I didn't write it down. uh, Yeah, I don't remember which one it is. But uh, they're, they're, they're going forward and saying, now that one is here. The one promised in Zechariah 9, the one we kind of foresaw a little bit in Jehu is here. The king is here. Now, uh, much has been made of this as far as they were expecting Jesus to come and kick some butt. To come and oust the Romans, to come and defeat all their persecutors, but we know that our greatest enemy is death and sin and demons. And so Jesus came to defeat enemies. He did it through death. He's a far greater word. And so when they cry out again, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, this is Simultaneously, a shout of praise to him who's worthy of it, but also a plea for his salvation. Save us, O Lord, we pray. And they're taking this directly from Psalm 118.25. Save us, O Lord, we pray. So they see Jesus, 
on a donkey, cloaks being spread out, he's the king, and all they can say to him loudly is simply, save us, O Lord, we pray. Now, Psalm 118 is unique in itself. You know some of the lines from Psalm 118. There, there's lots of familiar lines in it. This is the day. We will be glad. Now, when we say this is the day that the Lord has made, we sometimes mean that in three different ways. One, we just remind ourselves that every day is a gift from God. So when you wake up cranky to 17 inches of wet snow, you say, this is the day the Lord has made. Help me to rejoice and be glad in it. And then we mean it in a second sense, sometimes just refer to the Sabbath. We often use that line in Psalm 118 to refer to this day, the Lord's day, the day of worship. This is the day God has given us to worship in. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But the main meaning in Psalm 118 isn't just a reminder that every day is God's and be glad in it. It isn't just a reminder the Lord's day is specially set apart for God's day. It's a reminder that Christ was coming. That was the day that the Lord is giving. We rejoice in that promised day and be glad. And so when Christ is coming in Jerusalem, that's what they're thinking. This is the day. The day that his promise is here. We're glad. Praise God, he's here. And so he came. Now, the timing is unique. This is just a few days before the Passover. And the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem would be the day that families or those who would celebrate would set apart the sacrificial lamb. They'd separate it from the rest. They'd identify which lamb was going to be, have its blood shed. Symbolizing, of course, the need for forgiveness of sin through the shedding of blood through the Lamb of God. So it was on that day that God's King, God's Lamb, came into the city. That he was set apart. The people may or may not have understood what was going on, though Jesus constantly said to them, like in Mark 10.31. I got that wrong, but I'll read where I got it from. The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. He said that over and over again. So one of the things to do with Mark 11 is, don't you love him? He didn't shrink back from this. He didn't go there to be set on a throne. He went there to have a crown of thorns set on his head and to be mocked and beaten and tortured and killed for us. So don't you love him for his courage? for his willingness to go there and die. This is why God's people have almost always been willing to suffer for him because he was willing to suffer for us with such courage. It's, Jesus once said that they don't take his life from him. He laid it down. This is where we see that. He went to Jerusalem knowing what awaited him. He courageously went there Again, he didn't come there hidden. He came there very loud. He came there as a king with courage to face his enemies, to do so lovingly in order to rescue you. Don't you love him for it? Don't you love him that he did this? Part of him coming to Jerusalem like this was to confront his enemies. 
in order that he could end up on the cross. For us, for our sins. Last week in the sermon on these issues related to male and female, one of the things I said is that it, what, what God made men for is to take weight, to take responsibility. And we got a living picture of that, not by a man, but by the head of school there in Nashville, Catherine Kuntz. We don't know the details of it, and I hope they don't ever release the video of it, but apparently when the murderer came onto the second floor of the school, she went towards the gunfire and tried to engage and disarm to protect the kids, and she lost her life trying to save the kids. That's what Christ is here doing. Our world is filled with examples of this. That's what Christ is doing here. He's going towards the enemy. He's going towards the darkness. He's going towards the grave for us, and so we should love him for it. But he's also, he's not only going in great courage and dignity, but look at his humility. Again, back in Zechariah 9, we read explicitly what we see here implicitly. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey? One of the things you see in his humility is, who is he welcomed by? Who does he receive the welcome of? Again, if our president comes to our state, who is there to welcome him? Well, I wasn't making a political statement here. Governors and the senators and the representatives and important people. How about here? Who, who does it say welcomes him? Look at verse 8. Just many. Nameless. Just regular old Joes and Janes. He gives himself to regular people. And the other accounts of this in Matthew and Luke, it's noted that the children cry out and are tried to be shushed by the religious leaders and Jesus won't allow for it. Why? Because he's humble. He's gracious. He's coming to lay down his life for people like us. Just before this, Jesus encounters the rich young ruler or the rich young man in 1017. Remember this instance? Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, blah, blah, blah. And he says, teacher, like he's, this rich man is very careful how he titles the Lord. And teacher is a term of honor, but it's not the highest one. Because rich people and elite people are so proud. None of you are like that, thank God. And Jesus looked at him after he said, I've done it all, teacher, right? I've, I've kept these from my youth. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And this man was disheartened and went away because he's rich. And Jesus said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Throughout the Bible, we see this, God welcoming People, normal people, men and women, small, weak, trodden, 
people who only have one thing going for them. It's that they still have breath to say, save us, O Lord, we pray. That's all they've got to give him. They have no wealth. They have no record of perfection, of keeping God's law. All they have is, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's who he's come to, and we see his humility in it. Don't you love him for that? Don't you love him that he accepts sinners? Don't you love him that when you come to the Lord's table, you come. He welcomes you in faith, just you. And so we love him for his courage. We love him for his humility. We love him that he came to Jerusalem to die. And all he requires of us is, save us, O Lord, we pray. That's it. I think that kind of prayer is going to become vital going forward based on the events of last week. Some of you work in workplaces. It's just a few months away till June. And they'll require you or demand you to wear something celebrating Gay Pride Month. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, because it's not enough just to say, no thanks. You don't even have to make a statement in the other direction to wear something with a cross on it or to wear a Bible verse condemning it. All you have to do is do nothing. And that'll be enough to get you condemned. And what are you going to do on that day? You're probably going to need to pray, save me. Oh God, I pray. Because hopefully we'll do it with all kinds of humility like Christ and courage like Christ. You might remember in Pilgrim's Progress when Pilgrim and Faithful enter the city Vanity Fair. Recall that? It was, a, it was America. <laughs> Vanity Fair. It's just like our day. All the bling and glitz and glamour. And if you remember... All they did was walk through the city. They didn't preach condemning all the vices, all the immoralities. They just were different. They wore regular clothes. They didn't participate in all of the insanity. They just wanted to go through the city. And they were arrested. And if you remember, Faithful was killed simply because he refused to be like everybody else, to go along, because he was a Christian. That's our day. And the reason that you'll suffer is because you are a Christian bigot. Because you refuse what the world demands. You refuse to stop having children. You refuse to stop raising them in the Lord. You refuse to say that Divorce is okay. You refuse to say that birth control is a right. You refuse to go along with all of the sexual morality. You see that what our world is actually going towards is just destruction. And hopefully we weep and we mourn and we cry out to God. What they pray here is what we're going to have to learn to believe, that all we have is him. All we have is him who 
went towards Jerusalem with courage and humility and to cry out, Hosanna, save us, O Lord, we pray. And that that expression of faith is because he did what he did for us. What are you going to do on Mother's Day when you're together with all of your relatives and your sister's child who's now gay or trans is dividing your family? Oh, I hope you pray. Save me, God, I pray. What are you going to do when your husband loses income for being a Christian? We're going to pray, save me. Save us, O Lord. We pray. What are you going to do for your children as you look into the future of a world that is not at all like the world you got to grow up in, which is not all the world that your grandparents got? You know, our culture is dying. What are you going to do? You're going to pray. Save them, O Lord, we pray, knowing that God gives grace to endure and to live for him in that godless world. Like all of the saints, I think what's going to happen is the Bible is going to make a whole bunch more sense for us. It's not going to be so far removed anymore that we could suffer like this for simply believing in Christ. And so to love your enemies is going to mean something. To pray for those who persecute you is going to mean something. To suffer, maybe even unto death, is going to mean something. And one thing, above all things, that's going to mean, and we're going to need to be absolutely dependent on God, and being a part of the people of God that love each other and that have faith in God is going to be absolutely essential again. I don't think I'll have to sell church membership much anymore. (laughs) Because we're going to actually need each other. And so do not lose hope in this day. I think we should weep with those in Nashville who are weeping. I think we should be angry and cry out for God's justice for how those who are victims are being seen as the perpetrators and those who are perpetrators are being shown as the victims. I think that should enrage us. I think we should get ourselves ready to suffer more for his sake, which is what he's called us to do, right? What does it mean to be a Christian? Right. Take up our cross and follow him. And you're willing to lay down all things for his sake. And so will you. If so, then learn this prayer. Let's ask God's help. Father, we need your help. We do plead with you for revival in our day to turn our nation from its incredible wickedness and folly. God, turn us from our sin. Turn us from our wickedness. Turn us from each doing what is right in his own eyes. Please, God, have mercy on us. Save us, O Lord, we pray. God, I pray for us as your people that you would fill us with resolve and commitment, fidelity and love to your son above all other things. That we might even hate our lives because we love him. That we might be willing to suffer in this day because of the promise of the day to come. And so, Father, help us to not hold our lives too dearly. Help us to look to the city that is to come, that we might honor you, that we might give good testimony to your goodness and your salvation through our own suffering. God, help us to love each other, to put down petty and put aside petty animosities and grievances and so love each other and encourage each other all the more 
in this dark and difficult day. God, be near those families in Nashville. Please comfort them. May they find strength and courage to rejoice because they had the privilege for suffering for your namesake. God, we do pray for those who hate us. Ask that you turn them from that. Ask for your mercy on them as you've had on us. Keep us from any pride or thinking anything of ourselves. But help us to look to Jesus who endured the cross, despising its shame, knowing that it would save us from ruin and misery and death and hell and Satan. And so we praise you for your son, praise you for his courage, praise you for his humility. Thank you for his sacrifice. May we cling dearly to him. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.